Hello, and welcome to the Smith Sense Podcast with Matt Smith. I'm Anthony Bruno, and as always in each episode, Matt and I discuss ideas that at first blush might seem best suited for entrepreneurs or managers or anyone else navigating a business or a team, but really what we talk about are the ideas, lessons, strategies, philosophies, and other things that apply to really anyone trying to navigate a successful life. I always like to say this is not hustle porn, we're not pimping out a book or a consulting practice, we're just talking about ideas and topics that rise up in our everyday lives uh, while we're trying to create something new. This week, Matt and I debate regulations. Matt's stance is that they kill innovation and ultimately serve to restrict the creation of new businesses by adding unnecessary complication and cost. I argue that while regulation can easily overreach and create unnecessary bureaucratic headaches, there is a degree of regulation necessary to create a level playing field and protect the public. Now, I call it a debate, but really what we're doing is exploring the middle ground of these two areas. Then we you know, spend time defending our respective positions. I mean, after all, that's where the more interesting conversation lies. So with that, here's Matt. All right, Anthony, I wanted to talk today about something that is that I noticed the other day very distinctly when I was camping in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado. There's a lot of small towns in that area, and they're impoverished already. They, you know, they're not in a great place. They don't have any real major industry, and they've made their money over the last you know, couple of decades primarily through a little bit of tourism that sort of rolls through town. And with COVID, you know, it's just gotten worse, and it's harder and harder for these places to, to survive. And you just see it kind of teetering on this edge of almost total municipal failure in some of these small towns. And um, I was just talking with, some, with my partner about why that was. Like, what is it that keeps these places from, you know, why aren't they able to be successful? And I kind of want to go into that a little bit now because I think it's really important to understand, like, we've kind of put ourselves in a big bind here, not just with the, the COVID stuff and all of that, but just through, like, broader policies that I think really, really kill innovation. Just as an example, we had this, this, we're driving through this really small town. There was only one gas station in town, but that gas station apparently recently had changed hands. And so it was closed. So there's no gasoline available there. The only store that was uh, in town, you know, right there was a family dollar. You know, there wasn't really any other places where everybody had to do their grocery shopping and whatever else they needed, they went there. And, you know, I, so we went in there and asked them about where we could get some gas. And they said, well, the next place was like uh, about eight miles down the road. And so we went to the other gas station. And there too, there was just, you know, these kind of strip malls that were just empty. There were a lot of boarded up buildings. It's in pretty bad shape. And yet on one particular corner, you had a Walgreens, looked like it was brand new. And kitty corner to that was a CVS. Like, how is it possible that literally we can't, there's not even a gas station, you know, within, I mean, there's only one gas station within eight miles of there. And all that's able to survive is these large chains. And just going into the explanation of that, with my partner trying to explain like how difficult it is to get anything going anymore, you know, the restraints that are on entrepreneurs and just people who are trying to dig themselves out of a bad circumstances. You know, we have this huge wealth inequality thing in the United States happening now. I think that the same things that are making it so that those businesses have difficulty surviving there, unless they're these major chains is the same thing that makes it, that, that contributes to wealth inequality. And that really has to do with the regulatory framework that basically people have to deal with. So that's my main thesis I'm trying to make. And then I was reminded of it today because this week, the recipients of all these PPP loans, the payroll protection program, you know, came out yesterday. And, you know, there's a lot of weird names on there. You know, uh, we already was released before, you know, that there was all these public companies, people who have access to the markets, you know, taking 
more than a billion dollars. And then, you know, and then today you see that there's Kanye took some for him. I, I knew that was going to be first. Like if Kanye is not first, then you're not paying attention. But yeah, Kanye was on there. Kanye was on there. Lots of, lots of people with ties to different people in the administration, different congressmen, governors. I mean, you know, people in government, certainly, but also like institutions that like there's this guy, Grover Norquist, who is like this famous organization about lowering taxes, basically, you know, and reducing government waste. It's, it's, it's a nonprofit that's devoted to this, you know, that makes Republicans sign tax pledges that they're not going to taxes like this guy. They got money. The Ayn Rand Institute got money. Really? I didn't see that one. I heard of all the other ones. That's a new one for me. I did not notice that one. That's very interesting. It is, isn't it? I mean, and their argument was actually that, you know, it's they considered it reparations for all the, uh, whatever, you know? Uh, you know, I, I could pick up a private conversation we had right now <laughs> about that same thing. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty clear that, first of all, we live in a performative era where what you say doesn't really matter. It's, you can do something totally hypocritical and totally contradictory to it. And it's, it's totally fine. Actually, everyone's fine with it. Well, most people just don't pay attention to enough to realize that it's happening is more the issue. Like there's a lot of noise. So you may not always realize that it is. I mean, like I said, if you're paying attention and so you can, you can see the hip- hypocrisy in some of these things, but not everyone pays attention to it. So that's more the issue. They just know it'll get lost. I hope that's all it is actually, rather than we just care about how people perform. But when this first came out and I started looking at the PPP and we were considering you know, applying for it ourselves, we looked at it and made the decision not to because we had, we weren't in dire need. And we just thought it didn't make sense for us to do it because we know the funds were limited and it didn't make sense for us to do it. And so we chose not to. But at the time I, I was, uh, I commented to, you know, someone on Twitter about it, basically saying that I believe that, you know, when you saw actually how it worked, that the companies that would benefit from it were people who had good balance sheets, meaning they didn't really need the money and who are good service providers, you know, good lawyers, good accountants. People able to navigate the system, the Byzantine system necessary to actually access the funds. Exactly. And I think that that, I mean, you had major lobbying firms, you know, major law firms that are lobbying firms. You know, we had, uh, you know, you have hedge funds and uh, hedge fund marketing companies access this. But I doubt most of the, if you were to do a, a random poll walking down a street in your town of restaurants and places like that, that actually got the money, I think you'd find that they were underrepresented. And I think it's a, a symptom of this larger problem. And that is that, you know, what, and this, this happens all the time, is that essentially the incumbents, the people who are, you know, successful today, encourage, they actually support regulations to regulate their industry. Sometimes at the demands from consumers that they want protections, but oftentimes just like on their own, deciding that certain regulations should be brought out. And what it does, though, is it, it makes it very hard for new entrants to compete. And so the, it's kind of a situation where the upstart and the little guy is working against, not only is it difficult to build a successful business anyway, it really is hard. I mean, to you know, build products that people want, manage the distribution, the marketing and sales, all this stuff. It's, it's, there's a lot of challenges that a lot of businesses have. but the barriers that most businesses face actually start way before they ever are able to take the first dollar from a customer. As we were driving through the deteriorating towns in northern New Mexico, I was reminded of, you know, if you've ever been in Latin America at all, there's these things in Costa Rica, they call them pulperias. And essentially what they are is they're like little convenience stores. And they're little convenience stores, but the convenience store is the front room of someone's house. So like they take their patio and they fence it in. And then they have the front room of the house where they have like some, and they have some like, you know, Pepsi refrigerators and stuff like that. And then they live in the rest of the house. And 
the cost of capital, the cost of uh, getting launched is a lot lower than it would be to have a new, you know, to build a new 7-Eleven or something like that. But you can see how basically pretty impoverished people could kind of get a start in something without having to get 45 permits, without having to have a health department inspector come and check, without having to make sure that they have the agreements with approved distributors, with state licenses and all this other stuff. And as it is, it's so hard for somebody who doesn't, who isn't incredibly well capitalized to open a kitchen, you know, to open a restaurant. If you're a poor family, but you're, you know, your, your grandma's really has a great you know, recipe for lasagna or something like that. There was a time where literally you could just start selling the lasagna. And the hard part would be producing and selling the lasagna. And then, hey, if people loved it, the market would kind of draw you in and, you know, force you to sort of, you know, get a bigger uh, kitchen space for it or, you know, get a bigger um, dining area. But at this point, you can't, the market can't draw you in. Instead, what has to happen is you have to start off with enough capital to be able to check all the boxes for all the regulations that are required before you can even open doors and start to earn a penny. And I think that that really disadvantages people who are trying to dig themselves out of a bad financial position. There's a lot there to kind of get into. I, I mean, I guess what I would have to ask you is that how far along the, the less regulation spectrum are you exactly? I mean, certainly there's a need for some. I mean, you started talking about food. I particularly am happy that there are some you know regulations surrounding what someone who's going to serve me food must comply with for my own personal health reasons. I think they're, they could be a little complicated, overly complicated, in many cases, contradictory and hard to enforce, right? But like, you know, let's say my grandmother makes a great lasagna, but we know there's certain ways of, of making and storing lasagna that will reduce the likelihood of someone getting sick from eating that lasagna. So that making a regulation that stipulates that she should follow those best practices would be helpful for her to continue selling lasagna because if she started selling lasagna that killed somebody, her sales would probably fall. Well, that's true without regulations also, right? How so? If she sells lasagna that kills somebody, she's unlikely to succeed in her lasagna selling business. Would it be nice if, if we can get the lasagna made before someone dies in, in a way that would keep someone from dying, though? But if you, you can look in any municipality you live in and you can go to the, the health department and see all of the major code violations. <laughs> yes. By every restaurant that you can, every restaurant out there, you'll see code violation after code violation after code violation. It doesn't make a damn bit of difference. Because it's hard to enforce. Because all they can do is write them tickets. You know, they can cite them and then eventually they can shut them down. But like, it isn't the regulations that keep the food of a high quality. The regulations don't keep that. They punish people who are caught violating it. That's all they do. They don't actually guarantee that food preparation is done properly. All they do is they guarantee that if somebody is caught and they don't have a good relationship with the health inspector, that they're going to receive punishment for it and it's going to be public. Like the idea is that they're just there to protect people, but often what regulations do, and this is a standard libertarian argument, okay? So regulations, what they do is they make the public feel like everything is safe so they don't have to pay attention themselves. On the other side, there's also, and I'm not really necessarily at this point arguing for or against anything. I'm, I'm sussing out the holes, which is what I always do. But it also gives whatever the authoritative figure is involved the framework to enact a punishment so that there can be a consequence if something happens. That's not just a market-based consequence, but an, a real consequence. So like a law is there, a regulation is there so that, okay, we said you had to do this, you've stipulated you will do this, you did not do this, these bad things happen. And now because you not just because of the bad things that happened, but because of the fact that you actually broke the letter of this regulation, now we have a cause that we can take against you. Where without it, I wonder what recourse would there be for 
any kind of action against the person killing people with lasagna. And if we don't title this episode Killing People with Lasagna, I'm going to be very disappointed. We should do that, yeah. Well, you can sue anyone regardless. But that puts it on me. The person who is supposedly the victim of activity, the person who is wronged by the activity, yeah, that's basically English common law. The individual who is hurt by something has a right to get retribution from the, or some sort of compensation from the person who hurt them. That is English common law. Like that makes perfect sense to me. If no one was hurt, then does it matter if it's a victimless crime anyway? And I'm not saying, I'm not really going with that argument. What I'm, my, my biggest thing is that if I get food poisoning from a place, I can absolutely sue them. I can take them to court. I can introduce uh, discovery, which I can get every document that goes through there. I could depose all of their employees. I could hire a third-party inspector to go inspect the restaurant myself. So there's all kinds of um, things that someone can do if they're wronged by a restaurant. But the market-based activities, of course, would address it as well. But I'm just saying that like, if you look at how many restaurants fail to pass the health inspection. You start to wonder why you even have the health rules in the first place. Right. And people are like, well, if you just imagine if they weren't there. No, I actually think it'd probably be the same. But my major point with that is that the cost of, of an up for someone to get started in any business is so great now. And I mean, you know, maybe if you're, if you're sophisticated with technology, you can, you know, launch an online business that, that is not yet subject to a lot of the same regulations you might have at the city, the county, the state, and the national level, you know, just because they don't know where to put it yet. So you can kind of get around a lot of those. But for most people, the business prospects, that, the, that way to lift yourself out of poverty, especially if there's not great employment opportunities in your town, is for you to start to look for problems around you and start to fix them. From if I want to cut my neighbor's hair or watch my neighbor's kids, both of those I have to have city permits for. I have to have a state license to cut someone's hair or else I'm committing a crime. You can't just babysit neighbor's kids, you know, without being a registered or licensed childcare facility. I mean, there's a very thin line that you have to walk there between being illegal and doing it and doing it legally. You can't have in many places literally a lemonade stand. Kids can't set up a lemonade stand. It's inherently in violation of health codes. Now, these things could have, you know, maybe they're subjectively enforced or whatever, and maybe people don't want to put kids and their parents in handcuffs. I got that. But imagine if you're trying to do the right thing, you're trying to start up the right way, and you want to go and you want to open a restaurant or you want to open up a lawn care business or whatever it is. The amount of red tape that someone has to go through in the city and all the way up to the federal government to be able to even open the doors. Like, I don't just need, if I want to mow lawns, I, I don't just need a lawnmower and a customer. That's not enough. There's a lot of things in between a lawnmower and a customer I got to have in order to be able to start to do business. And those things are incredible tax. I totally get it. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of hoops that people need to jump through. Many of them are unnecessary or unhelpful or ineffective, right? But what I wonder is just how to resolve that problem. And I know, I know that you and I have these discussions a lot. And I think we, we agree on that, like the core foundation of some of these things, but I think we kind of approach it differently. And I'm going to take you out of the equation for a second and say other people that I've argued with about this, right, is that a lot of other people, I don't know yet where you stand, so you're going to tell me after I state this, but a lot of folks that I would know, the solution is just to get rid of all, deregulate everything, everything goes to nothing or something like that, right? And I always argue that I look at it more of a, if we just enforce it better or if we just implement it better, and I know that sometimes there's this mythical, oh, if it was only better, it would be, it would, it would work type of point of view. So that, that's kind of where I'm at. I still think that some, there should be some steps that do protect the customer the, and the public in force. Now, what they are, I don't know. I haven't looked at it that closely, but I, I think that conceptually there should be some. And, and I think what happens basically is that 
I don't know how to put this, but it's like a, a lot of different fixes on top of things that are broken that just keep getting on and on and on and on. And no one goes back and looks at the original problem. And, and it's, it's a time thing, right? New people get elected. They create some new regulation. They don't spend the time to look back at the things that should get taken away because there's just so much time. There's, there's only so much time in a day to do all these things. So you have like this sort of cobbled together framework of Byzantine regulations that are impossible to navigate. That's where we could start the conversation, I think. Okay, so I think the idea, the, the biggest thing is that the, to me is that the idea that the regulations are made with the intent of protecting the public is actually wrong. Most of the time, the regulations are designed to protect entrenched interests. Like, why is it that the PPP program was structured the way that it was structured? Why was the application the way that it was structured? Why were the banks that handled it, the SBA-connected banks, why did they process the loans in the way that they did? It protected the people who were the entrenched interests. They're the ones that had the lawyers, that had the bank connections and all that. It was not designed for the local retailer to do. Why is it that the local retailer has to shut down, but Walmart stays open for COVID? Because the local retailer doesn't have a lobbying arm. That's why. Or the funding of a national organization to... To lobby to get the rules changed. Not only that, but some stores generating income goes into the pot that helps other stores. Like They have that financial foundation. And, and it's not just COVID. I mean, let's be honest, like a lot of the supply and demand, they're able to buy uh, things in bulk and sell them cheaper than the local store does. There's all that, all that stuff still comes into play as well. Right. But, but when the governor decides that these certain, a whole subset of stores doesn't have the ability to be open and that others do, like, why is it that I couldn't have a dentist appointment? I couldn't schedule a dentist appointment for a period of time here in Colorado, but there are other things I could have done. You know, I can go to the pot shop. It's lobbying power. It's lobbying power. And so what I'm saying is that the entrenched interests create a body of regulation that is designed to protect their business interests. And it makes it's not necessarily to keep people impoverished or anything like that. It's making sure that there are exceptions carved out for them, at least in the regulations. Think about when we tried to do, you know, take a, the music catalog public through royalty flow. I mean, to get access to the public markets, Congress came up with a body of law that was designed to make it so small businesses could more easily do it. It still cost us more than a million dollars of legal costs to go through the effort. Like, how's that greater access for who? Who's got that to just throw away and just to try, you know, to make your stuff so that individuals can buy and sell it? I mean, it's crazy. All of these regulations are designed. I'm, I'm just saying they're not designed necessarily by a benevolent community leaders trying to make sure that children and elder, the elderly are not injured. It's primarily designed to make sure that protected interests are entrenched, you know, that they're protected. Well, there could have been a way around all the PPP plan stuff, but it smacks of a, a certain style of government that I know you're not particularly a, a fan of. But I mean, like the government could have just guaranteed everybody 80% of their salary like Denmark did. And there's no PPP program and it just sort of happens. And all this shit goes away. I don't think that that's good to do that. But, but I also, I do think it was better than having it filtered through a very, like a, through crony capitalism through these very corrupt structures. I mean, like the, we bailed out the airlines, okay? And the airlines agreed to keep all their employees on until the end of September. And then at which point, because the business is down 70% year over year, they're going to lay them all off. So all we did was we took the Americans' money, we set it on fire by filtering billions of dollars through the airlines so they'd agree to keep their employees there for a little longer, and then they're going to fire them anyway because the, the market, I mean, they can't afford to keep them around. So it's like, what a waste of money that was to basically bail out bad CEOs running these airlines you know, for all this time that have made awful decisions over the course of the last decade, you know, and theoretically it helps the employees, but very just a little bit and for a little period of time. And they all know they're going to lose their job 
you know, as the, that, uh, yeah. the commitment to keeping people through September 30th goes away. One of the things I just see happening a lot is just that there's these ideas of like, what is right, what is wrong? Like, you know, we can't do this way because it goes against a certain philosophy or a certain belief in how things quote unquote should be. I hate the word should. And so it's like, okay, so we have to do it in this convoluted way because, you know, we believe in, you know, markets or we believe in, you know, private businesses and this kind of stuff. We don't believe in a government funded option because that's against our philosophy of how government should work and things like that. But occasionally, and I'm not saying this is necessarily the case in this particular situation, but occasionally the solutions may exist in, or rather to say the solution may exist outside of what your, not you, but you know, your general ideology. Ideology. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Ideology. Just here's one example. I always get in this argument, right? Smoking in bars. A couple of years ago, they banned smoking in bars. Everyone freaked out. Bars are going to stop, they're going to lose money and blah, blah, blah. And the government's overreaching. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine. Oh, if, if, you know, if people really don't like smoking in bars, then some bars can choose to not have smoking and they'll get more business in the bars that do buy it and the market will decide and all this stuff. But it all worked out and people are actually happier going into bars now where there's not any smoke, but it was against their ideology. So therefore it was a bad decision. Like this kind of thing is what I'm talking about. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, like, I don't like a government telling a business that it, what it can and can't do, because I just think that that can lead to consequences that are bad. But I mean, you know, personally, as a non-smoker and somebody who's, I hate it, you know, and most people are non-smokers, at least in Colorado, we have very few smokers here, percentage of our population, you know, it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, the government policies go both ways. I mean, you know, there's a, like, for instance, the, in the news big time right now is all the racial stuff. Well, you know, if you owned a restaurant and Atlanta in 1960, it was against the law for you to not force black people to eat separately from white people. The government said you had to. You weren't a racist. You didn't were necessarily racist at all. You were threatened with fines and imprisonment if you didn't build facilities that separated them. I mean, it's absurd. And so, like, the racism was government mandated, you know. And so, I think that's the risk of the government solutions with all this stuff. But I mean, like the smoking one, I agree. That was a good for overall health. I think it was good for everybody. And I think that, you know, you could have put that on a referendum and people would have voted for it, you know, and the vast majority would have voted for it saying that, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. You can imagine though, as a business owner being really worried about it, you know, imagining this could kill my business. I just see people smoking all the time. Like what will happen to my business? And so that you can see them fighting against it. I think that it's the crony capitalism, which is the biggest problem. You know, basically it's everyone supporting their buddies. You know, I was just uh, looking at stuff with the FDA recently. Do you know that like nine out of the last 10 head of the FDA work for pharmaceutical companies now? That represents the last 40 years of the FDA. Do you really feel like we're getting our, our regulations or are, are serving us best when these guys know the big payoff comes when they get to be on Merck's board? I agree. And you go down the line, the SEC, they basically say, oh, you know, they have experience, they understand how it works, and that's why they get these things. But this is inevitable to, to happen without a doubt. And it's more than just crony capitalism. I, I would add that a large part of it is just, it's the middle layers. So you're talking about the big decision makers, right? Most likely the bigger problem, or as equal a problem, are the middle layers of bureaucracy, where people's job it is to do certain things and enforce certain things. And if those rules, regulations were to go away, well, then what's my job? So I'm enforcing this stuff, not because I understand what comes before or what comes after. I'm protecting where the stage that I particularly sit at right now. And I got to protect that, you know, and rule it to the letter of the law, no matter what, because that's my reason for being here. Otherwise, I might not have a job or might have the status or whatever it is that I find important in that role. So that I actually understand more. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think my biggest point with all of this, it's not the ideological part with the, the FDA and the FDA's regulations, and which I think are, have been crazy. 
you know, there were upstart companies that wanted to do test kits and the FDA is like, you know, no, shut them down, set them cease and desist letters. God forbid, you know, we get any testing innovation for COVID, you know, three months ago when we wanted to do it. Oh, it goes to your meat business that you talked about, right? You can't just process your own meat. You got to go through these big testing facilities, or processing facilities rather, and, and all this kind of thing. So the people mostly I'm most bothered by, I guess, is when, when I was driving around New Mexico again, how do you get out of that situation? There's no employment opportunity there in that town. The cost of everything is really high still. Like, I mean, it's cheaper than here, but it's not cheap. And so how does someone get themselves out of a situation? How do they work themselves out of it when they have a, an economy that's in a downward spiral? Like, you know, maybe you could argue maybe there are government programs that might supposedly help, but none of them have helped so far. So what do people do? And I just think like the barriers to entry are so high. Like even for people where there are homeless problems, I couldn't even buy a piece of land in the middle of nowhere and just build myself a cabin. I couldn't just take the trees that are there, chop them down and build myself a house. No, I'd have to get the building plan approved by the county. I'd have to have inspectors come out and judge my work. You know, it have to everything had to be up to code of some kind. What people don't understand is it's the homeless dude that that hurts the most. Like it's the people who are trying to the upstarts that are trying to build something. You know, and starting from such a little base, these things are paralyzing, and they kind of entrench this lower class in this place where they really can't do much to get out of it. They can't just they don't need you know a fifty dollar lawnmower. And people who need their lawns mowed, that's not good enough. They need a lot more than that before they can begin to eke out a living for them and their families. I think these, these regulations are killing us. And there was this simple, and when I, this PPP thing was just a reminder of how ridiculous it all is. And then, you know, I saw there was this, um, every once in a while, pretty regularly, you'll see these, we have too many laws, you know, essays that come up. And there was one in the week this week that talked about it and went through it. And, you know, there's a great book that was probably written about a decade ago, and it's called Three Felonies a Day. And it's basically says the average American, unbeknownst to them, commits on average three felonies every single day. And when you have so much law that no one can even know the law, then you know the law has gone too far. You can commit all kinds of crimes where no one has ever hurt and you never know you did anything wrong. You know, when that's the case, clearly there's too much. It's hard for people to be successful in an environment like that, you know, where essentially there's so, if you ever scrutinize deeply, there are laws that could be used against you because you are certainly breaking laws. You're probably just not aware of them. Probably the only thing I could look at with Trump and say he's done really right is on the regulation side. I think it's something that he said that for every new regulation that's put on the books, two have to be removed. But even that's like an arbitrary kind of. I understand the spirit of it. I understand where you're going with it. And I'm not just doing some knee-jerk anti-Trump argument here. But like I said, even that's a regulation that can be difficult. But it does speak to that whole like building on layers and layers of band-aids that I mentioned earlier. Let me just give you a really absurd example of how ridiculous they are. I remember when I was 18 and I was in the army and the, you know you have a whole different body of law called the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And it's much stricter than you know, civilian law is in most cases. And there were laws that were so insane that had been around for a long time. Obviously, you know, things like couldn't have, the gays in the military you know, were allowed. So certain sexual acts that would relate to that, there were serious penalties associated with that. But even, I know this is not PG, but this is the most absurd example I can think of. Fellatio was against the law. Okay, so you're a soldier, there's fellatio, you could be thrown into the brig. Those, those regulations are taken off the books, but they've been around for over a hundred years. And these are the kinds of regulations that actually exist that if you can't find two to replace for every one, you know, that is published a new one, then, you know, you, then be, you have to be more thoughtful. Like, you know, I mean, there's, there's too many that no one can keep up with them anyway. 
I mean, this is the thing, like the problem is very large and the solution is very targeted and narrow, right? And the solution is obviously, I think you vote for people in the office that you think will try to address this issue, right? And you mentioned referendums. That's another thing. So there is, there's sort of participating in the process a little bit that is kind of necessary. Otherwise it's just, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but I mean, it's easy to sort of complain about it, but like, what's the solution? How do you drive towards some kind of resolution for any of these things? It's raising them, it's generating attention around them and generating activity to try to, to reduce them. And I think that is possible. A small little example I'll give is there was one where you were in Denver, or at least, you know, in Colorado, I think in general, you weren't allowed to have a rain bucket in your house to collect runoff water to use to water your plants and use less water. That law that, that prohibited that was geared towards more larger agricultural outfits where you were essentially stealing the what would become the runoff water for other farms and whatnot. And so I could see where maybe the intent was something along those lines. But for me in my house, in my herb garden, give me a break, right? That's no longer a law. So these things do, it's very targeted and very small in activity. I don't know that one went away, but I mean, here's the absurdity of it is, is that you don't own the rain that falls on your land. That is owned by the state. That's essentially what the regulations were before. I didn't know that they changed. It changed a couple years ago, and I bought Rain Bucket the very next day. So how do you look at a way to resolve in some small fashion? Well, the main reason I'm even bringing this up is because I just think when, in a time where people are looking at there's massive unemployment, people are really concerned about wealth inequality, most people think we need to do more. Like, what can we do to help? How do we you know, make things more equitable? How do, you know, like, I just... Most often the solution is not additive. It's what Nassim Taleb would call via ne- negativa. It's removing something often actually makes things more possible rather than adding something new, rather than adding another benefit to people so that they don't have to, you can survive without a, you know, having to have a job you know, through universal basic income or something like that. How about just make it easier for somebody to be able to start a lawn mowing business? You know, make it easier for their mom to be able to sell their enchiladas or something like that. I just so I'm mostly just trying to raise the awareness around that idea that like these regulations really do protect the wealthy and entrenched. I have good lawyers. I have good accountants. There's a lot of things that I can do that a lot of people can't do simply because I have these professionals in my life and you know we have a great balance sheet and that kind of thing. But it really screws people over who are really just trying to get them, you know, put their life together. So the call here then is to, we have a, a national situation you know, economically and employment wise, right? That is not going to go away, regardless of how the ups and downs of the daily stock market uh, rallies and such. So what you're calling for is like an effort to identify the barriers, the main barriers. That's not, I mean, you got to take it in chunks. This is one of those chip away at the edges kind of efforts, I feel. But, you know, what are some of the biggest, I'm not, I'm not asking you to answer right now, but I'm not saying we should establish an effort that could kind of identify what some of the biggest barriers are towards, let's call it self-employment for now, and then make an effort to rescind those as, as needed, but have everyone from all sides of the, you know, of the interest, you know, come up with, okay, if we, we can get rid of this, but maybe if we add one thing to replace these four and it modernizes or something like that, you know what I mean? So that there's still, it's not just like burn it all down and let us, let's see what happens. You know what I mean? But there's more of a, of a thoughtful effort too. But I think, I mean, we're really in uh, revolutionary times in our country. We really are right now. And the thing is, is that if you aren't willing to consider radical adjustments to the status quo, they will be considered for you. I didn't vote to have the Kit Carson statue taken down in Denver. I didn't get to vote on that. I love Kit Carson. I think Kit Carson is a remarkable human being. I mean, he's one of the most amazing figures of the West. His statue was taken down in Denver preemptively, but I didn't get a vote on that. I didn't have any. What I'm saying is that in when times of stress occur, you don't get a say unless you're willing to consider things radically. And I think at this point, 
we need some zero-based thinking a little bit about you know, going all the way to the bottom and go, well, what do we actually need? What are we really trying to accomplish here? Because we have years and years of legacy and bureaucracy on top of one another that keep me from putting a fence around my backyard that's higher than seven feet. Like I just, if I want to put an eight foot fence, that's illegal. Can't do that. If I want to put a seven foot fence, that's fine. Well, yeah, but, but I still going to come back to the thing where that I agree with most of what you're saying, but I got to play the, I'm not even playing devil's advocate because I actually truly believe this is that, you know, there's got to be the other side. It's like, okay, what is the consequence of whatever rule you're taking away to other people? Because a fence is a perfect example. You might want an eight foot fence, but you're not the only one that's impacted by that fence. I'm your neighbor. And I also now have an eight foot fence and I may or may not have wanted. So, I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole. I'm just saying in general, when we think about these things, you got to think about both sides and not just the one. Exactly. But that's between me and my neighbor. And if I can sort it out with my neighbor, it's irrelevant. The state still says I can't do it. I'm not, I'm not trying to be like a dick about it, but like it just keeps going. Okay, fine. You and your neighbor are cool with it, but then your neighbor sells the house and someone new moves in and that's a whole nother thing now. Like I'm just saying- They don't have to buy the house for the fence if they don't want it. I'm just saying that these things can kind of sort of find a little middle ground on a broader level that makes some of this stuff a little bit easier. That's the design for it. What's happened is it's made it harder. So I'm just saying that, yes, zero-based thinking, and and we're looking at it, but think about all sides of the issue. It's designed to protect the entrenched interest today. So like all the building codes, okay, all of the you know zoning laws are designed because I don't want to have a 7-Eleven built next door to me. I don't want my neighborhood, which I like, to be ruined by someone putting a 7-Eleven next to me. So the zoning laws are designed to protect me as a homeowner today right now. But housing costs are going through the roof because people like me who already have shit want to make sure that our shit stays the same. And it makes it really hard for people who you know don't have everything already to be able to build out a grub stake. So they get pushed out further to the periphery. You know, They get higher density housing. But even that is so incredibly expensive because the limits on that. So uh, like San Francisco is a perfect example. The housing problem, the problem there is the restrictions on development. That's what makes it so housing is totally unaffordable, totally unworkable. And who wants it that way? People who own the property today, they want it that way. And you have to understand, like these entrenched interests, it's not like, it's not both sides. It's making it difficult for people if we want to have a vibrant, dynamic society where you there is upward mobility financially for people, you know, to be able to work themselves up to something and where, you know, new and innovative businesses can come into being, the ump can't be calling, holding on every fucking play. And that's what happens right now. Okay, no, I, I get it. Like I said, I mean, I think it's an interesting point of view I hadn't thought about it in those frameworks before. And I just, you know, like I said, I just, uh, what I like about these conversations is that you help me think about things that I hadn't thought about just because I just don't, it's not stuff that I, comes into my life on a regular basis. So I don't, I don't think about it, but I hope that even my little bit of pushback on some of the things, cause you know, m- might come into place. Well, because I do, again, there's, there's always at some point in all of these things, there's a nugget of desire to help. And that could be the worst things in the world. I, I know that that's where, you know, best intentions and path to hell and all that kind of stuff. But like, there has to be that other side to it. There just has to be the understanding that the, some of these things do have reasons. And as long as the solution at least takes into account those reasons, I think is important. And I'm, I'll stick by that no matter what. Yeah, I do understand that. And I do think that the good intentions are there at first. And then like the CDC originally started actually to deal with a malaria in the United States. So basically collect data and make sure that every all the states understood what was going on with malaria, where it was flaring up. But then there's scope creep. And then now they're talking about obesity, you know, or, and stuff like that. Like the CDC like changes into all these other things. And then all of a sudden is deeply ill-prepared to be able to handle an actual pandemic that comes our way. A lot of it got defunded as well. I got to kind of point that out. So 
Actually, not really. If you look at it, the funding is not less than it was when Obama started as president. So, well, I mean, total funding, but funding towards particular programs is another. Okay, so it's all about the nuance. I got to raise one other thing. This is before I forget. We talked about the PPP stuff. That was interesting, but the data that was released, it was only for the companies that received more than $150,000 in PPP relief, which was actually only 15% of, I don't know if it was the total or the number. I'm guessing it's the number of people that applied. So there's a huge you know, portion of folks that still got something. It was just less than 150, just to put the stat in perspective. It's a good point. And that really would be most of the small businesses you know, that would be below that number. Exactly. Yeah. It's just worth, uh, why they wouldn't release that, I have no idea. Well, probably just to protect the privacy of really small businesses, which, yeah, I mean, I think it's probably a reasonable compromise to keep those private and then people above that number making it public. I'm glad they made these public, though. It's pretty... The Ayn Rand Foundation. <laughs> They're the only ones that really need the shaming. Ayn Rand. I mean, really, come on, man. How, where's, the, where's the shrugging? <laughs> where's the shrugging? Maybe that's the title. Yeah. I mean, on principle, I can't believe they would do it. You know, reparations or whatever. It's still, it's still outrageous. Let me, so let me say one other thing about regulations, about the... So the belief around regulations fundamentally is that they protect people, they keep people from getting hurt. And I believe that's the intention, but I wish I had the exact stats in front of me, but there's something like 10 or 11 people every year that fall off of the Grand Canyon, like go over the edge. Yeah, they take a picture or something, yeah. 10 or 11. Now, all of those people are on the US side of the Grand Canyon. The other side is Native American territory, which also allows visitors you know, to see and visit the Grand Canyon. There are none, none on a typical year who fall off the edge of the rim in the Native American parts of it. There's no railing. So a lot of times the idea is that railing gives you this illusion of safety. You feel like it's okay, you know, and, but when there's no railing and you know there's no railing, you go, I better be on alert. I better be careful. And I think a lot of the, the regulations, we think that the, maybe the drugs that we're taking are safe because the other FDA approved, even though they recall all kinds of drugs with big problems. I mean, look at the opioid crisis, you know, that I mean, just killed you know, many, many people. But there are lots of other drugs. You see this all the time. So there's like the illusion of protection sometimes. There is a real level of protection. I would agree with that. But the, it's, what's communicated is a much higher level of safety than is actually there. And it causes humans to make really bad decisions because they assume, well, they wouldn't let this happen if this were dangerous. I'd be fine. I mean, there's no way I would be able to like go walk up to the edge like this unless it were safe. Take pictures and fall off a cliff. There's, yes. Just because... I have to bring it up now. Like I wonder, I don't know. I would be very interested to know what the facilities and services and other things are on the Native American side of the Grand Canyon that my question is, do they just get naturally fewer visitors for some reason or another? And could that be also part of the disparity and that there's, a, you know, there's always another component to it. And then I was going to say on the food related thing in particular, like I do know what you're saying. Like you have these food regulations and a lot of people, you know, fail them all the time. I actually like knowing which restaurants are being cited by the regulations and it helps me know which ones to avoid. Without it, I may not know that. I mean, I could walk in and it certainly looks clean, but I have no idea what's going on in the back of the house, you know, that kind of thing. So maybe there's a little bit of that there too, just because not necessarily that the regulation is the only way to do it, but something that allows me to know, am I in a sketchy place or not? Like if you think I'm ever going to eat anything in the Pepsi Center ever again, you're out of your mind or, you know, mile high after that whole news article came out, but without the regulations and without the reports that allows a media entity to kind of list out the different ways that things are being violated, I don't have as much information to make that decision. So again, there's components of it that still should be there other than just like, I mean, if there's nothing, then you know people could be eating stuff, getting sick, and you'd never know that they were getting sick because who's going to do a story on Joe Schmo from Four Dollars Down getting sick off a hot dog? Yelp will tell you. Yelp's full of shit. Now, get me started with this. 
Let me give a counterpoint to this. And assuming is that you need the government to do this. There's a simple private solution to this. It's called the good housekeeping seal of approval. Basically, you have a private company that has a brand that you trust, who basically restaurants pay them to come and inspect them regularly and publicize the results. They pay them to do it because they because, I mean, people prefer to go to restaurants that are you know party, party program. How many of these sort of consumer seal of approval type places have problems with basically getting bought off? You go to like the rating systems for stocks and stuff. It's just like, they, it all becomes part of the system. The, but the thing is, the government's the same way. So I'm not saying that the government's the only solution. Anybody, it becomes part of this little, to you mentioned before, the, the cronyisms and all the other kind of things that go into place. But I'm just saying that whether it's a government regulation or a private thing or whatever, that what it just needs to be is just some sort of aggregation of information that people can have access to. That's where I want to start from. How it gets implemented, totally open to talking about it. But it's not just like, hey, let the person sell food no regulations, no no idea if anyone's getting sick unless they just stop going back there. Yelp, I kind of have zero faith in at all. So there's got to be some sort of balance there. We're not going to solve it in our conversation right now. Consumer reports, good housekeeping, consumer approval, JD Power and Associates. There's all kinds of agencies that basically you know focus on specific niches and do a good job of it. We rely on, but whatever. I get it. Regulations feel like they're safe, but you go to Latin America, and I'm telling you, tell you what, you're not. These are places that are not regulated that you're eating at. And you know what? They still can be great. They like they actually have restaurants and they don't regulate it. Oh my God, how do they even do it? How can these restaurants exist? Everybody should be dead. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Full disclosure, I have various food and anxieties that uh, we probably don't need to get into right now. But anyway, there it is. So, all right, a good conversation. I'm glad we could kind of kick the ball back and forth here a little bit on this. Yeah, it was fun. Always fun. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Smith Sense Podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to read more about Matt's thoughts on this topic and others, please visit his blog at smithsense.com, where you can also read the show notes, leave questions, and join the discussion. If you like what you've been hearing, please give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and sharing it with friends would go a long way. A quick thank you to Russ Rizzo for the show notes, to our engineer, Jason Sanderson, and to the wonderful Zoe Keating for the use of her beautiful music. I'm Anthony Bruno, and we've been sharing time with Matt Smith. Have a good one.